Open the Word of God, please, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 deals with God's sovereign choice of His children, and the Apostle Paul uses Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and the two twins that Rebekah had as examples, and then he uses Pharaoh as an example down in verse 17. I want to read a few of these words. The issue at stake is not national privileges. The issue at stake is not more goodies of this life. The issue at stake is who are the sons of God and the sons of promise, who are the vessels of mercy, and who are the vessels of wrath. Verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, she had twins. She conceived twins. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In this passage, two twins by the same father and mother are conceived and one is elect, as it is stated, and one is not elect. One God chose to have mercy on and one God chose not to have mercy on. God chose to have compassion on one and not on the other. And this in a chapter teaching us the sovereign government of God in the world and His choice of some that would be vessels of mercy and others would remain vessels of wrath. Now, Esau was already guilty for Adam's sin, which Romans chapter 5 teaches plainly. He already had a sin nature, and though he may not have done good or evil in the practical way of violating a commandment that he understood, he was already a sinner in the sight of God, as are all children conceived of any of us. I want to spend a few minutes before the Lord's Supper on the distinguishing love of God. The word distinguish isn't in the Bible, but the concept and its intent and meaning is most certainly there. To distinguish is to constitute a difference. Serving to distinguish or mark off from others. Distinctive, characteristic, that renders a person distinguished or eminent. It's to make a difference. And God's distinguishing love is His differentiating love, or is His discriminating love, in that God loves some and not others. This doctrine is so foreign and contrary to most pulpits today that it's hard to preach it, it's hard to hear it, and it's hard to believe it, but it's still the truth. They have Romans chapter 9 and the rest of Scripture to deal with as well. God's love makes a huge difference, distinguishing and marking His elect children from others. This is also a distinguishing mark of our church. For we hold the old paths about the sovereignty of God. We believe that eternal life is an unconditional gift by the eternal decree of God to show love to some. All others, just like the reprobate angels, 
are left to the just condemnation of Adam's sin and their own sins. There's only a few left in the earth that understand God's love and Christ's redemption are for the elect only. We're some of those few. We preach the whole counsel of God, which includes the revealed wrath of God from heaven in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. God has a peculiar people. He had a peculiar people under the Old Testament. He has a peculiar people in the New. That doesn't mean they're strange and weird, though they are strange and weird in the world's perspective. The word peculiar in its primary sense doesn't mean that. The word peculiar means that is one's own private property that belongs to, pertains to, or characterizes an individual person, place, or thing as distinct from others. We are God's peculiar people in that we are His possession, and He owns us, and He's made us different from others. Israel was God's peculiar people under the Old Testament. His churches have His peculiar people under the New. Let's think for a few minutes about the love of God. This subject deserves far more time than we're going to be able to give it right now because it's huge. However, let's think on a few things to remind us of what we believe so that the preciousness of the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will have all the meaning to us that it should. Most of us were raised hearing that God loves everyone. Those people that say that have to admit that 99% of those that God loves end up in hell. A strange way of showing love. 99% of the world's population ends up in hell by their definitions. Though God loves them all He can, And though He sent Jesus Christ to do all that He could for them, and He sends the Holy Spirit to convict and woo, whatever they mean by that, all of them. It's a terrible travesty that the love of God is so worthless. That it didn't save any. And we want to embrace the love of God because He loved us and made a difference in our lives and will never be separated from that love. And we want to consider a few of the Bible principles and doctrines that show us God's love and make it meaningful. Follow with me on seven points now that may be hard to follow, but we need to think about them. What makes love precious? What makes love meaningful? What makes love valuable? What makes the love of God valuable and precious and meaningful to us so that we can rejoice in the love of God toward us. Think about these seven angles. Love is precious to the degree of the importance, intelligence, power, rank, and wealth of the one loving. Yeah. The love of a winner is more valuable than the love of a loser. I mean, just just think through these aspects of love. Now, when we think of the love of God, there's no one wealthier, there's no one of a higher rank, there's no one more intelligent, and so I hope you can see where I'm going. Love is precious to the degree of the importance, intelligence, power, rank, and wealth of the lover. 
Second, love is precious to the degree of its commitment, cost, duration, or the price paid by the one loving. You know, if someone says they love you and they don't do anything to show it, how is that precious love? There's nothing precious about it. It's hot air. You know, when we think of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it couldn't be more valuable when we think of His love. Love is precious to the degree of communication of it, the certainty of it, the effort and the investment to the one loved. Love is precious to what is exact, what is exactly conveyed and given and invested in the object of love. What does the one doing the loving do for the one being loved? That shows us the preciousness of love. Love is precious to the degree of advantage, pleasure, profit, and security gained by the one being loved by the relationship. Love is precious to the degree the love is guaranteed and unconditional to the one being loved. Love is precious to the degree of its exclusiveness, focus, and certainty on one or very few objects. If it's indiscriminately offered to anyone or everyone, what kind of love is that? Love is precious to the degree that it does not depend on the performance of the one being loved. Now, the Arminian heresy that many of us grew up with of God loving all men, with most ending up in hell, satisfies only the first two of these seven descriptions of great love. Those two are, love is precious to the degree of the importance of the person doing the loving. They do admit, for the most part, that the God of the Bible is the one doing the loving. And love is precious to the degree of its commitment, cost, or duration, in that they say you can't be separated from the love of God, and God's love sent His Son to die for the sins of men. But their God is a failure at best because 99% of those that He loves end up in hell. At best, He's a failure. At worst, He's a monster for creating men He knew He would damn, but teasing them in life by telling them He loved them. We grew up believing that God was omniscient, meaning He knew everything. If God is omniscient, then He knew before He created those He was going to send to hell because they didn't invite Him into their heart. But He went ahead and created them anyway, and He teased them through life by telling them that He loved them. That's a monster. We believe that God created men, and they sinned, and God saved some of those men for His glory through His Son, Jesus Christ, having set His love on them before the world began, and they can never be separated from that love. And He did not love the rest, but left them to their just consequences of their sins, just like the angels. Out of the mass of angels that were created, there is a segment of the angels called the elect angels. To be an elect angel means God chose you 
in some way to keep you in your original innocence. And there are the fallen angels that God did not keep and does not love and did not provide any redeemer for them. No one wants to argue that God loves the devil. But Arminians ought to because they think God is love means that He has to love everything. But that is not true. That is not true at all. The Gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that God and His love for His people perfectly fulfilled all seven traits that I gave you. Perfectly fulfilled every one of them. You should take the time to carefully consider each of those seven and how God fulfills it perfectly. I want to share this with you briefly. I was 19 years old, having been married just a few months. My wife was 16. Yes, we were a young couple. We were happily married. And we were looking for a church in the winter of 1977-78. That's a long time ago. That's almost 40 years ago. And we went to the First Baptist Church of Saline at Bob Jones University. I was introduced to Jonathan Edwards, though I was warned if I continued to read Jonathan Edwards, I would probably get kicked out of the university because he was a Calvinist. But I had been introduced to the sovereignty of God, and I rejoiced in Jonathan Edwards' plain descriptions of the glory of God and the glory of Christ and the glory of salvation for His people that I was able to read. Well, we went to this Baptist church in Saline, Michigan, a few miles outside of Ann Arbor, and I was given this little track. Now, some of you have seen this before. This little track, and I, I was I was ripe for this little track, but that's that's the glory of God in how He deals with all of us. Remember, the closet Calvinist had already given me four books that I had read. And I had been introduced to Jonathan Edwards, so I was ripe. So this little track was given to me. And it's a picture of the ark. And there's people drowning in the water outside the ark. And it has life rings hanging on the side of it that say, Smile, God loves you. And the title of the track is, What is wrong with this picture? What is wrong with the picture? Is it that there was never any big boat in the world? Is that what's wrong? Is it wrong that there were people drowning in the water outside the ark? Is it wrong that there was a life ring on the side of the ark saying, smile, God loves you? Now this was given to a young man named, you know, me, who not too much earlier had given out a tract that's the number one track in the history of the world. The Four Spiritual Laws. It was a little rectangular track. The Four Spiritual Laws. And so you would give it to someone and tell them, there are four spiritual laws. So you open up the cover, and the first spiritual law, number one track in the history of track distribution. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a spiritual law by Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Where is that law found in the Bible? How many of those do you think Noah threw off the ark to the people in the water? How many do you think that Joshua distributed to the seven nations of Canaan that you read about last night in Deuteronomy chapter 7 
that the Israelites annihilated. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves Himself and has a wonderful plan for His existence, and it might be the involvement of you being a vessel of wrath for His honor and glory. On what basis do I get that? Proverbs 16.4 The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. I thank God for meeting Him who made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. To banny about the love of God like it is some big sugar daddy in the sky, some big pile of cotton candy to be given to anyone, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. Let's take just a few minutes to look at some of the things the Bible does have to say. The only way that we can know God is to read the Bible and what it says about Him. There is no other way to know God. It has nothing to do with your feelings, your sensibility, your sentiment, your tradition, your habits, your ideas of what God should be like. It has nothing to do with those things. It is only by revelation. You cannot know Him without the Bible. All that we can know about Him from creation is that He has an eternal Godhead with Eternal power and a Godhead. He has the nature of God and He has eternal power. That we can gather from looking at the creation and throwing the stars out into space and the sun and the moon and putting us here on earth. We must go to the Bible. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, especially about God. We need much more than creation to show us Him. Most Christians, those who meet the Elmanac definition of the word, meaning that they're just nominal Christians in name, most Christians ignore anything that is uncomfortable in the Bible. If it makes them uncomfortable, they ignore it. It is obvious that choices, God makes choices for men that are horrifically distinguishing and discriminating. It's obvious. Where a person is born and to the parents that they are born, and into what squalor they are born. Some die in the womb, some in youth, some are born blind, some are born retarded, some are born in squalor. Can't they look and see? Because the Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. We're sinners. We are rebels. He owes us nothing. No one deserves a healthy birth. No one deserves good parents. No one deserves the opportunities of life. No one deserves health. We all deserve hell. We chose to rebel against God and throw away eternal life and choose, and chose death instead. Why do men ignore the Garden of Eden's consequences when the entire human race by one sin was condemned to a threefold death? There is a God in heaven, and He is unlike what men want to make Him out to be. The reason we die, the reason babies die, the reason we shall die, the reason men have died for 6,000 years is because Adam ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Romans 5 teaches that very plainly. Why don't they think about the flood, which I have mocked with this tract that was given to me at 19 and which is mocked on our website, and which we all ought to mock. 
Should those people drowning in the water been given a track, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's ludicrous to even think about it. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to meet you, the God Jehovah of the Bible, open their eyes and open their ears in the few minutes that I have and show thyself to them like you did me. Thank you, Heavenly Father. The Canaanites, Korah, what happened in 70 A.D.? Why don't they think about God's love of those in hell? What a strange way to show love, to send the object of your love to hell. You say, well, he left it up to them, whether they were going to invite Jesus into their heart or not. Uh Aha, but he knew which ones wouldn't. Why did he go ahead and create them and tell them that he loved them for creating them when he knew they were going to reject him and not invite Jesus into their heart and go to hell for it. See, they, we, we know exactly why men are created and end up in hell. Because God has purposed to show His wrath and His power on the vessels of wrath, the vessels of dishonor, because He is the potter and we are the clay. Right. Romans chapter 9, verses 21 through 24 plainly teach us that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, trying to tell you the truth about the love of God is like Noah trying to tell his generation about rain. Do you know how many times it had rained before Noah got up and preached about rain? It had never rained, so they thought he was a nut. It's like Columbus asking for three ships to sail, that the earth was round and he would not fall off the edge of the earth. And men didn't want to believe him, because something commonly and long accepted is so hard to overrule when we are so used to thinking a certain way. But God loved his people and set his love on them. You know, why do most Christians think this is my body? The words spoken of in communion actually change the bread into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Because they were taught that way and they've never thought. Lord, help us. You know, what are the consequences of this heresy about the love of God? Compromising pulpits, effeminate sermons, no fear of God in the earth. Ignorance of God's holiness and righteousness, feminized church leadership, superficial professions of religion, lack of zeal for holy living, neglect of discipline in the church and home, weak and begging ministry, the end justifies the means evangelism, a degraded view of salvation, contemporary worship to cater to the carnal, universalism and no hell heresies, candy cane use of Bible verses, PETA, and lovers of pleasure assuming eternal life. And on and on we could go. Universalism is the fastest growing ism among Christians in America. That means no hell and everyone goes to heaven. And it is a logical consequence of believing that God indiscriminately loves all men and wants to save all men, just can't get the job done. And so you end up getting rid of hell. Nobody wants a hell. I don't blame them for getting rid of hell. But the Bible teaches a hell. It was made for the devil and his angels. We can benefit greatly. This topic deserves much more. But it starts with this subject. God is holy. Don't talk to me about the love of God until you have learned the holiness of God. 
God is holy and it limits and directs His love. His love does not limit and direct His holiness. His love is limited and directed to holy objects because He cannot love an unholy object. It is impossible because He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity approvingly and love something unholy, impure, and sinful. He is holy. That holiness means He is impeccably free from all moral corruption Himself and He despises it anywhere else He finds it. I cannot preach on the holiness of God. It has been preached before. God's name is holy. The four beasts declare it day and night. The devils call Jesus the Holy One of God. The Bible is called Holy Scripture. The Spirit of God is the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. God swears by His holiness. And so forth. The first thing we want to learn about God is that He is holy. And it was the sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that satisfied a holy God. We are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does to be sanctified mean? To be made holy. Jesus Christ died and by the shedding of His blood made us holy so that we are sanctified, consecrated for God and fit for His presence because all of our sins were washed away by the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to do is read the Bible. Look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5. These are words that are ignored. But they're in the Bible. And they make perfectly good sense. They justify and defend and glorify our holy God. Psalm 5. Much, much could be said on this subject. It has been in the past. It may be in the future. But we just have time for a little bit right now. Psalm 5, verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Believe it. That's a true statement. Our God does not take pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. If you're sinful, you're never getting to heaven. Unless Jesus Christ washes away your sins. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Fools can't get to heaven. Unless they're made wise by Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and wisdom. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. How many sermons are being preached today in America from Psalm 5 5? Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. He has to hate them. His holy nature demands it of him. Verse 6, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. Those are liars. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Abhor is another word for, yeah, hatred. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man, a violent man that takes the blood of another person, the Lord will abhor him. And so this is the Word of God telling us that God hates workers of iniquity. Look at chapter 11. Romans, I mean, Psalms 11, the 11th Psalm. Same verses, 4 through 6 in this place. The Lord is in His holy temple. Notice that. The Lord is in His holy temple because He is holy. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. He looks upon every human being and measures them with perfect measurement. The Lord trieth the righteous. Those are His people that He has made righteous and are living righteously. He tries them. He chastens them. He does it in love. But, notice the inspired disjunctive, but in opposition to that loving chastening and measuring of the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and in horrible tempest this shall be the portion of their cup. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, we're in trouble. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. In this fifth verse, the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. How can anyone get to heaven? By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for some of them. Because if you read Hebrews chapter 8 last night, Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that those for whom Jesus Christ died, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So we are no longer workers of iniquity because Jesus died for all of our iniquities and all of our sins and paid for them and put them away once for all. But when men stand before Jesus Christ, those He sends to hell, He has these words for them. Depart from Me, ye that work iniquity. He is still very conscious of their sins. I never knew you. Does that mean He never knew about them? He knows about everyone and everything in the universe. He never knew them in an affectionate, loving relationship. Is what that word means. When He said, I never knew you. You are a worker of iniquity. God hates all workers of iniquity. They are sent to hell with just punishment for their sins that they chose to commit in Adam and in themselves. You say, this doctrine sounds unrighteous. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, is there unrighteousness with God? His answer, God forbid. And when you ask another question or two, he says you don't have a right to ask questions. Hath not the... Nay but, O man. This is what he said to more questions. Nay but, O man. Romans 9.21 Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and one unto dishonor? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. So much could be said. This will be short. Those who think that God has to love evil, has to love sinners, has to love workers of iniquity. They ignore the Bible. Here's how it happens. How are some men free from sin in the sight of God by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? How did it happen? How does it work? 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Paul and the Ephesian church was going to be able to go to heaven very easily and be in the presence of God and have all spiritual blessings. How did that happen? The next verse tells us, according. This is exactly how it happened. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How can God love workers of iniquity? Because before he created the Garden of Eden, he chose some men in Christ Jesus and viewed them as being in Christ Jesus where they are holy and without blame to his perfectly holy sight. And he could love them. He could, he cannot love a sinner. It is contrary to his nature. It is contrary to his holiness. So he chose in infinite wisdom and prudence, as it is called right here in this context, wisdom and prudence, he chose us in Christ Jesus before there was a Garden of Eden. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us and assigned us to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lamb's book of life. We were given to the Lord Jesus Christ who in the fullness of time would come and lay down His life for us and pay for all of our sins and iniquities, making us holy and without blame in the love of God. That's how it works. That is so simple. That is the simple doctrine of the gospel. God chose some rebels. Now what what flies up in our mind is, that isn't fair. That isn't fair. What isn't fair? He put us in the Garden of Eden and gave us one commandment and we stood up and defied Him. We deserve death. He gave us the tree of life. We didn't want that. He gave us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We wanted that one. And He said, if you if you eat it, you're going to die. We ate it. We defied Him. We all should go to hell. What isn't fair is that some are saved. Everyone should go to hell. Just like all of the sinning angels are going to hell. Why don't you feel sorry for them? And you people, you people that have known me for a while know that I get off on this because when people start raising these questions, it is not to defend the character of God. It is to defend themselves. That they deserve to go to heaven no matter how they live. Because if they were out to defend the character of God, why doesn't He love the devil and his fallen angels? Because they don't care about the character of God. They want a mechanism in place that will protect them. I want a mechanism, meaning a doctrine in place, that glorifies God and puts me down where I belong to where I have to beg for mercy of the great God of heaven. And He has sent mercy through His Son Jesus Christ and He planned it and decreed it Before the world began. What a verse. Verse 5, right along with that, choosing us, having predestinated us. That means settling our destination beforehand unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Whose will is involved in this choice? God's will. What is His will? That we would be the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the sons of God. That was right in conjunction with choosing us in Christ so that we would be holy and without blame because He is holy and without blame and because we were chosen in Him before the world had existence, we were also destined, predestined to be the children of God according to the good pleasure of His will. This is God's good pleasure that He chooses some to eternal life. This is the God of the Bible. Forget what you learned in Sunday school. What does the Bible teach? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Why is it done this way? To the praise of the glory of His grace. It doesn't say it was done this way because He felt sorry for man. He didn't feel sorry for man. He doesn't feel any sorrier for man than He feels sorry for the devil and his angels. Why do you think that you're better than an angel? For those of you that think that God isn't fair, if any of us think that, or why did we once think that? Because we didn't think. Amen. We just assumed it to be true our entire lives and never thought about anything. Never measured it by the Word of God. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace, verse 6, that He does this, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? Jesus Christ. This is my well-beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God has made us accepted in the Beloved. That's how He can love us. That is one incredible transaction. Amen. He chose us in Christ, and because Jesus Christ pleased Him well in all things, Jesus Christ pleased Him well for us, which made us accepted in the Beloved. So though we were workers of iniquity in a practical sense, though we were workers of iniquity in a vital sense, though we were workers of iniquity in a legal sense until Jesus died on the cross, we were perfectly holy in an eternal sense from before the world began. Some people call that our positional relationship to Christ. So we weren't workers of iniquity. We were holy and without blame. Oh, Lord. Hebrews 12 Six through eight, we all know it. We should. God is our Father, and He chastens all of His sons. He chastens every person that He loves. But if you be without chastisement, what does He call you in that passage of Scripture? A bastard. A bastard. What does a bastard mean? That's a Bible word, bastard. A bastard is not a child of God. Why would anyone come along and say that God loves the bastards as much as He loves the sons? When the Bible says that for whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. But if He be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all children are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. How in the world can you presume against the Word of God to make Him love bastards? Right. But what if I'm a bastard? Then run to the Lord Jesus Christ and beg for mercy. Instead of wanting to raise your hand and ask stupid questions. Instead of getting jealous about yourself. Instead of getting envious about the doctrine. Instead of rebelling against it. Humble yourself. 
and smite upon your breast like the publican did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'll be able to tell you that you're not a bastard. But if you can't do that and you want to object against the doctrine of the Bible, you probably are. Look at that. That is so plain in the New Testament that God chastens every one of His children, every single one, whereof all are partakers. But if He be without chastisement, then you're a bastard. Why would they presume that God equally loves His sons and the bastards? That ruins the love of God. The love of God is special. It's particular. It's effective. It accomplishes things. And it has saved us by His grace. How in the world can you love someone you never knew? Jesus is going to say in Matthew 7.23, I never knew you. And that knowledge is an affectionate personal relationship. I never knew you. Look at Romans chapter 8. Just give me a couple more minutes. Romans chapter 8. There's so much that could and has been said on this wonderful subject. If you ask the average Arminian, what is hell? They will usually answer, it is where people are separated from God. I mean, that's just a common expression. I don't even know why it was coined that way, but you know, when I read the Bible and talk and see what it says about the lake of fire, it's a place of perpetual eternal torment made for the devil and his angels called the lake of fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's Bible terminology, but let's go ahead and use their terminology because it serves us well here. Look at Romans 8.38. For I am persuaded. The Apostle Paul was persuaded of a fact about the love of God. Let's get it. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The rule of the Bible is that when God loves someone, it is impossible by anything that you can possibly imagine to ever separate that person from the love of God. And yet, 99% of all those that He loved are totally and eternally separated from Him and His love. Look at Romans 5 and verse 5. So simple. I can promise you something about the love of God. It is impossible for you to ever be separated from it. If God loves you, He will love you forever and you can never be separated from it. He has purposed and He has performed in sending Jesus Christ to pay for your sins and Jesus nor He will ever lose a single one of those that God loved and sent His Son to be the Savior of. And this is why we have the Lord's Supper. It is one incredible transaction for us and shows us His love. Otherwise, it is an ineffectual joke that 99% of those Jesus died for pay for their own sins. You know that it says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. It doesn't say all lies shall have their part in the lake of fire. Please keep the distinction very distinct in your mind. All liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 22. Why are they still liars if Jesus paid for their sins? Because Jesus never paid for their sins. I'm a liar. 
by practice. I've lied in my life. But God chose me in Christ Jesus before the world began. So I am holy and without blame and there's no lie visible. Because my position is in Christ where I was placed before the world began. And the Bible says this over and over and over. That eternal life was promised before the world began. That God's purpose and grace in Christ was given to us before the foundation of the world. That the names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. This is God's drama. This is God's plan. The world only exists to work out what He purposed before He created it. For the great drama of in the middle of time sending His Son divided into B.C. and A.D. and Jesus hung between heaven and earth and took the wrath of God upon Himself and out was poured the abhorrence of evil upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.5 Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. If God loves a person, He sends them the Holy Ghost so that they have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. What about all those that never had the Holy Ghost given to them? Because the Bible says God sent forth His Son in Galatians 4, 4-6, through Romans chapter 8. God sent forth the Holy Spirit to His sons. And here are the words. And because... Ye are sons. God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So the only ones that get the Holy Spirit are His sons. They were the ones predestinated to adoption back there in Ephesians chapter 1. And the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts because they're the ones that He loves. Psalm 711 says that God is angry at the wicked every day. How loving is that? Why did David hate the enemies of God with perfect hatred? In Psalm 139, verses 22 and 23, why did the sweet psalmist of Israel say that he hated the enemies of God and he hated them with perfect hatred? Did David in Psalm 139, verses 22 and 23, please or displease the Lord? Should we take a guess? He was pleasing the Lord. Well, was he hating those God loved? Or was he hating those that God hated? The four spiritual laws. Is Bible evangelism to go around and tell everybody God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? No. When you read the book of Acts, that is the record of New Testament, apostolic, Jesus Christ approved evangelism. There's no other place you want to go but the book of Acts. 28 chapters. That is God approved, God blessed, apostolic, Jesus Christ taught evangelism. Do you know how many times the word love in any one of its 13 conjugations in the English language is in the book of Acts? None. None. Never did an apostle stand up and tell a mixed audience that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They did stand up and say, God is sending his Jesus, God is sending his son Jesus Christ back to burn this stinking place up and every one of you will give an account of your life to God. Why don't they ever read the book of Acts? Because it doesn't agree with the four spiritual laws they've made up. There isn't a single word about love in the book of Acts. That is the book of the Acts of the Apostles in Evangelism. 
They preach that there is a judge coming to judge this earth and we ought to repent. And they didn't offer promise or anything else about some cotton candy God in the sky who's nothing but a big sugar daddy. They taught that there's a holy judge that is going to judge heaven and earth. You know, when the Apostle Paul got to sit with the governor, he reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Why didn't he take the time to tell them that God loved them? It wasn't done. I know it sounds strange. And I sound like a wild man. I am that. But what I am saying is not. What I am saying is the truth of God's Word. And I'm thankful that others have believed it. And there were a whole lot more of them as a percentage of Christians in the past than there are now. When Stephen faced the Jews in Acts chapter 7, why did he say something mean like, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears? Why didn't he say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? When Paul was on Mars Hill, when Paul was in the marketplace, why didn't he just say to everybody that would hear him, listen everybody, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Why didn't Paul do that? Go read Acts chapter 17 and his invitation at the end of that little sermon with the Greek philosophers. God's love is only meaningful when his hatred of sinners is fully understood. When you realize that God looked down into this mess of humanity and we deserved his hatred, we deserved his death, we deserved his eternal judgment, every single one of us did, but he chose to adopt some of us. Right. If, if you come into some money, some, come into some means, and you decide to go to India and adopt a child out of that squalor over there in India, have you done anything wrong against everyone else that's in India? Have you done anything wrong? Have you wronged the other children in India that you don't adopt? Are you kidding? Nobody deserved to be adopted. You did it out of the kindness of your own heart and mind that you wanted to take one of those poor little children from India, bring them to America, and give them all the good things that we enjoy. That's your choice. God looked into this world and this cesspool of humanity, and we were all rebel enemies, far worse than poor children in India that are bathing in the Ganges River because of Hinduism. We were far worse than any of that. We were enemies of God and rebels. And he chose to love some of us. And his love is around us, under us, upon us. It put us in Christ before the world began. It sent Christ 4,000 years after the world began. It sent him to the cross. When he begged in the Garden of Eden that there might be another way for him to redeem us, there was no other way. And he gave him strength by sending an angel from heaven so that Jesus Christ would make it to the cross and die for us, that our sins and iniquities would be put away, and he remembers them no more. We are holy and without blame before him in love. In love! We are holy and without blame before Him in love. Because He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He chastens us in our life to perfect us, which is proof that He loves us. He tells us that we ought to love our wives even as Christ loved the church. If Jesus Christ loves everybody, including the church, then I ought to love all women, including my wife. And on and on it goes. It's ridiculous. It's so wonderful. 
The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 22 warned against false teachers that make the heart of the righteous sad and strengthen the lives of the wicked to continue in their wickedness. And that is preaching that ridiculous doctrine that many of us grew up hearing. Because it makes the heart of the righteous sad because God's love is meaningless. It strengthens the heart of the wicked that God loves me no matter what I do. God's love for us should constrain us to serve and fear Him. The Apostle Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth me. When Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 saw the Holy God and he was condemned about his speech, he said, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips. God sent an angel to take a coal of fire from off the altar and put in his lips. And God said to him, Thy iniquity is purged and thy sin cleansed. Then God said, who will go for us? And Isaiah immediately said, here am I, send me. Because that's the effect that it ought to have on us when we think about the true love of God that sent His Son to die for us. He didn't make salvation possible. He obtained eternal redemption for us. Jeff was pretty excited about Hebrews 9, 12, and I don't blame him one bit. I've reveled in that verse for a long time, and so has he, but... You know, we keep reading it in the Bible. It's fresh every time we pull, open its pages. It's fresh to us. That Jesus entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He didn't make eternal redemption possible or probable. He made it certain because He obtained it for us. God's love should move us. The Apostle Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth me. It put Him in a straitjacket and sent Him in only one direction, to serve God. It's not a popular topic. But neither was the universal flood by Noah or around earth by Columbus. You cannot know the true God of heaven apart from his detailed revelation in the Holy Scriptures. What you have before you that we're going to partake of right now, the members of this church, is a memorial supper to remember that God chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began so that we would be holy and without blame in love. We were by practice, when we were born, workers of iniquity. But he washed all of our iniquities away. He remembers our sins and iniquities no more. When we stand before him, he will not say, you worker of iniquity, because our iniquities were washed away. Though we did work iniquity in our lives, he saw us in Christ in eternity He sent Christ 2,000 years ago to pay for those iniquities. Once we were conceived and born, He then sent the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and give us a new nature. We then get to hear the gospel that this God loved me and made it possible by choosing me in Christ before the world began. And very soon, He is going to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to gather us unto Himself. We observe the Lord's Supper to remember the legal transaction that took place 2,000 years ago that legally involved the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the world began, Jesus didn't exist in His combined God-man nature. We didn't exist. But we were chosen in Him by covenant called the everlasting covenant. God chose certain ones and put them in Christ, charging Christ by covenant 
to come in the fullness of time and die for them and that they would be covered by his life and by his death and by his intercession. That was fulfilled in time 4,000 years after creation, 2,000 years ago. We celebrate it today. That is how God loves us because he poured out his abhorrence of sin in his choice to bruise his only begotten son in our place. And through his death, our sins were washed away, and he loves us. Amen. This is the distinguishing love of God, in that God has made a difference. And this is a distinguishing mark of our church that we should always remember and be humbled by it. There is nothing in us to claim or be worthy of the love of God. It is all by his grace and infinite wisdom and prudence that he designed such a plan of salvation. Amen. Amen.